0: Turn in your New Testaments to 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 to 7, and then turn the page to chapter 5, verses 17 to 21. First Timothy, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. The saying is sure, if anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, dignified, hospitable, an apt teacher, no drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome and no lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, or he may fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Never admit any charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, So that the rest may stand in fear in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without favor, doing nothing from partiality.
1: God, we do stand in your presence now and in the presence of the elect angels and in the presence of Jesus Christ, it is an awesome thing to gather as the people of God. We are not a mere voluntary organization. We are the body of Christ. We are alive with spiritual life and will never die. This assembly of people will go on for 10 billion ages of millenniums. And it is an awesome thing to gather now under the head, Jesus Christ, and worship you and put ourselves under your word by your spirit and give heed to your teaching and submit to your guidance. And we do that now and I especially ask that this very remarkable day in the life and history of this church in which we vote to call a council of elders would be blessed both in the teaching this morning and in the assessment and voting tonight. Apprise us deep in our hearts of how wonderful it is to be the people of the living God the pillar and bulwark of the truth, the body of an indestructible Christ. In his name we pray, amen. This is a historic day in the life of the church because we've never had, to my knowledge, and I went back and read or looked through the two volumes of history that have been written about Bethlehem, to my knowledge, never had a council of elders before at Bethlehem, which we will have, Lord willing, after tonight. Up until now, constitutionally, the church has been governed by a council of deacons and a single pastor who may serve ex officio on all boards and committees. This change, I believe, will bring the church governance into much closer harmony and coherence with biblical teaching and with the historic Baptist practice, if you go back far enough to the early days of the 16 and 1700s. Now, my aim this morning is to put this event in biblical perspective. I want us to understand biblically what's happening tonight as we act upon these nominees for the eldership and then install them in days to come and uh, submit ourselves to their leadership. I want us to have a biblical framework to know what's happening here so that we can feel joyful about it. Church life ought to be a remarkably joyful thing. And and I hope to show you before we're done that church leadership must be a joyful thing, or the church will suffer tremendously. I have six statements. Here they are. And I'll give some brief biblical foundation and comment about each one. Number one, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, his body. Ephesians 5.23. Now, I'm going to refer to so many texts, there won't be time for you to look up them all. But if you want to, you can jot them down and listen carefully. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Ephesians 4.15, grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body makes bodily growth and builds itself in love. So the church is a body, like my body, and Christ is the head. On top of the body and as head with eyes and ears and senses, he leads, he guides, he knows where we're to go. And the mouth in the in the head gets nourishment down to the body so that nourishment and leadership come from the head. And we bow before the Lord this morning and confess him the head over the church. Our leader, our nourisher, our sustainer. And therefore, the church is not a mere human organization. It's not an organization merely, it's an organism, it's a body with life in it. And it is not merely human because its head is divine. And the life that flows down from the head, energizing all the parts of the body, is a supernatural life. And therefore, my plea to us is that we not try to model our church life on corporate structures in America. That we not allow the tremendous pressure. You see, almost all of you work in the world where there are structures that are designed to make things work the way humans work things. You have to be. That's where God wants you to be. But what that creates in the church is a tremendous pressure to do everything the way it's done out there. Because the sons of this age are very smart about how to run organizations. And if that's the way we do it, that's all we will be, is an effective human organization. And I don't care about being a part of another effective human organization. I want to be a part of something living, dynamic, supernatural. And therefore, we need to develop structures and practices that get us in touch with our head and and conform everything to the way he's doing things. We need to get in sync with the living, supernatural head of the church and do what he wants done in Minneapolis and around the world. That's point number one. Christ is the head of the church. Number two. All the members of the body of Christ are priests and ministers. All the members of the body of Christ are priests and ministers. 1 Peter 2, 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the marvelous deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Revelation 1.5, he loved us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever. I do not believe that the New Testament knows anything about a clerical priesthood. That is a professional priesthood, namely me, David and the staff. The New Testament knows nothing of a professional clergy priesthood. You are the priests. Moreover, Ephesians 4.12 says, people like me exist to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You are the ministers. The word minister does not define my office. It defines my function and your function. Elder defines my office, or overseer, or pastor, or bishop. They're all synonymous in the New Testament. That defines my office. My function is servant slash minister, and it is therefore exactly the same as your function. We are all ministers and all priests. That's point number two. Number three. Under Christ, the local congregation is the final authority in the church. Under Christ, the local congregation is the final authority in the church. Now. Two things that that does not mean. It does not mean that we are above the word of God, the Bible. When I say under Christ, I mean under the word of Christ. That's the Bible. Therefore, under the word, the church is the final authority. Nor does it mean that we are above the spirit, because when I say under Christ, I mean under the spirit of Christ. The spirit is the spirit of Christ. Therefore, the congregation is ruled by the word and the spirit of the living head, Jesus Christ. But underneath that canopy of authority in the word and the spirit, the local body of believers has the final authority and guidance not bishops not popes not deacons not elders not pastors but the church governs with final authority under the spirit and the word now my text for that assertion is Matthew 18:15 following among others it goes like this the situation is that Jesus is addressing how you should settle disputes among believers goes like this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Real good advice. It's the only way a church will survive is to go straight to the people that you have a grievance with and not to somebody else about the grievance. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed in the evidence of two or three witnesses, and if he refuses to listen to them, these two or three priests that you've gathered from your Sunday school class or wherever, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he's out. That is, let him be to you as a Gentile And the tax collector, in other words, there is no court of appeal beyond the local church. It's over. That issue is settled. The local church body settles it. Now, if you just think about this for a moment, if the local church is the final arbiter at the basic level of who's in and out, it's the final arbiter, period, under Christ. Because that's the basic issue. What constitutes the organization? Who can be a part of it? And the church decides who's a member and who's not a member, and therefore the church decides all other matters of controversy or disagreement. The church is the final authority, not a group of pastors, elders, deacons, bishops, popes, presbyters, assembly, or anything beyond or in the church. So, the three first statements. Christ is the head of the church. The church, that is the members of the church, are priests and ministers, and therefore The church body corporately has final authority in matters of faith and life under the word and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Statement number four. God calls some members of the church to feed and lead the church as servants of Christ and his people. God calls some, not all, members to lead and feed the church of Christ For his glory and uh, for the sake of his people. In other words, even though there is a priestly equality, even though there is a ministerial equality and equality of childhood under God and an equality of heirship of Christ. Nevertheless, God ordains that leaders arise in the church, be recognized by the congregation and then lead and feed the church. Here are the examples from Scripture. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will have to give an account. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, we beseech you, brethren, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Acts 20, verse 28, speaking to the elders at Ephesus, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God. So, the congregation, under Christ, his word and spirit, uses its authority to recognize and test and confirm a call to leadership and put it in place and then voluntarily submit to that leadership. And by that I mean learn from its teaching and be responsive and supportive of its ministerial initiatives. That's what I think it means when it says obey your leaders. Now, this could easily sound like a contradiction, couldn't it? A local church with final authority, in all matters of faith and practice, under Christ and his word, and then leaders rising up in that group of ministers and priests to whom the church is called to submit. So you can easily feel like, hmm, that doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem like it's going to work. But in fact, when you think it through, since it stands straight, plain in Scripture, it's not contradictory, but very profound, very needed, very vital in the church, I think when you think it through to the end, you realize there is a profound difference between leadership that inspires, models, teaches, mobilizes, persuades, points the way in ministry and mission on the one side. And corporate authority that puts parameters around that leadership, moral parameters, doctrinal parameters, and holds that leadership accountable to serve the church and calls them to an account if there is an aberration outside these doctrinal moral parameters that the church puts around its own chosen leaders. Congregational authority and strong leadership under that authority are not incompatible. They are biblical and they are, I believe, absolutely vital. I don't think you will find one thriving church growing. Where there's not a strong leadership in place, giving vision, giving direction, mobilizing, inspiring and blowing the trumpet week after week in committee meetings, in pulpits, in teaching sessions and saying, this is what we're about. Let's do it. Church responds to that kind of leadership and holds that leader accountable not to get out of hand, not to be immoral, not to be false in his doctrine. Number five, these leaders in the congregation were called elders in the early church. They were the elders. Now, what I want to try to establish here in just a moment is this. When you read the New Testament, you do not find that the eldership was one among many options of church leadership. What you find is an absolutely universal existence of the eldership in the early church. There were no churches without elders, as far as we know, in the, in the first century. Every church we know about, as far as we can tell from the New Testament, had elders. Now, let me demonstrate that. It's real simple, and it puzzles me of how the patterns of church leadership over recent uh, centuries have come to ignore this so terribly. Let me take you on a geographic survey of all the churches in the New Testament. Jerusalem, Acts 15:22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men and to send them to Antioch. Ephesus, moving up now through Syria around to Ephesus in Asia. Acts 20, verse 17, Paul talks to the elders in Ephesus. He says, and from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. So there are elders in Ephesus. Then take the book of Titus, written to Titus on the island of Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, that you might amend what is defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So every church in Crete has elders. All the churches to which James wrote. Now, you remember James's letter is written to the, um, the dispersion, it says. Just the dispersion. All the churches, Jewish-speaking and Jewish churches all over the empire and he writes this, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, is any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. He just assumes there's elders in every church. If you get sick out there in uh, Illyricum, call the elders of your church. If you get sick up in Babylon, call the elders of your church. If you get sick up on the Caspian Sea, call the elders of your church. If you get sick down in Alexandria and Egypt, call the elders of your church. They're all over the place in the New Testament. There's no church where they don't exist. Take First Peter. Peter is written to all the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And he says at the end, so I exhort you, First Peter 5, 1, I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as the glory to be revealed. And then he gives instructions for the eldership. One more text. Everywhere Paul went, as far as we know, he appointed elders in every church. Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom... They believed there is a universal existence of eldership in the New Testament. This is why if you go back 200 years and 300 and 400, all Baptist churches had elders and deacons. Where the idea came from that one pastor with a ruling board of deacons should govern a church, I have no idea whatsoever. It is a strange historical aberration that emerged somewhere along the way about 150 years ago, uh, mainly in America. Before that time, there were no Baptist churches without elders, and they always had multiple elders, not just one pastor or one elder. My final point is this. The function of the elders was to feed and lead the church. Another way to say feed and lead would be teach and govern teach and manage, teach and oversee the church. They, uh, as leaders, were to give direction and guidance and inspiration and challenge to the church, and then as teachers, they were to provide the kind of doctrinal guardianship of the word of God. One way to, to, to have a little catchphrase to remember who they are would be to say that the elders are the wardens of the word, or another way would be to say they are the trustees of the truth. The Bible says that the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. We are the pillar and bulwark in American culture. The church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. And in this pillar and bulwark, there is a leadership charged with uh, transmitting, unfolding, applying that word. Titus 1.9. The elder must hold firm to the sure word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to confute those who contradict it. That's where I get the idea of he's a trustee of the truth. Here's where I get the idea of governance. First Timothy five seventeen, let the elders who Rule well, or you could say govern well, or oversee well, or manage well. Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, that is a very important verse because it shows that within the body of elders, there are distinct functions. It says, let the elders who rule or govern or oversee or manage well be considered worthy of double honor. And then it says, especially, there's a group of people in that eldership. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Not all of them are preachers and teachers. So, 11 men will line up before you tonight. Tom Steller will stand up in Cameroon. And I'll read Tom's testimony. He faxed it to us. So, 10 human beings will line up before you tonight. And you'll look at them. And you'll say, well now, let's see. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There's Pastor John, there's Pastor David, and Tom's over in Cameroon. And there's uh, Tom Schreiner, and there's Tom Rogstad. They teach Sunday school. And there's Gene Sprinkle. He teaches Sunday school. And so the rest are not now actively teaching. I hope I'm not leaving anybody out. Are not now actively teaching, but they then should be thought of in terms of those who know and can handle the word, but whose job would then be thought of in terms of governing, overseeing, managing, but all of us together in that body responsible for the oversight of the church in that way. Well, tonight you will meet them, you'll hear from them, you will pray and worship and vote according to your congregational authority to put them in place or not put them in place. Let me close by just mentioning this idea of joy again. It says if you if I had kept reading in Hebrews thirteen, seventeen, uh, we will have to give an account for souls, and then it says, Let your leaders do this joyfully and not with sadness, because that would be of no advantage to you. I love that. Let your leaders See that your leaders, insist that your leaders be happy. (laughs) Because if they are not happy in the ministry, it will be of no advantage to the church. Oh, what a curse on the church. An unhappy pastor and an unhappy eldership is. God, give us a happy eldership. And I hope that you pray to that end this afternoon as we act. Let's pray together. I want to just go back to where we began this service at the Lord's table and, and reaffirm that Jesus loves us, this we know, for the Bible tells us so. He's the head of the church and from him is flowing all life to us. From him has come all guidance for structure and, and authority and life and joy and camaraderie and mutuality. And it may be that some of you have brought into this service burdens that you need to pray with someone about. And our prayer teams will be here at the front between services for a while. You can stop up with them and ask them for prayer. They'd love to pray about anything at all in your life that you're facing to give you strength and healing and encouragement. And now, Lord, I ask that you would dismiss us with your joy and your blessing And in this afternoon, may we soberly prepare ourselves for this awesome act that we as a congregation are to perform tonight in installing or voting upon the eldership. In Jesus' name I pray and all the people said, Amen.